All right. Welcome to the Sweet Science of Fighting podcast. Today we have Tim Kissingring. Welcome, Tim. Thanks for having me, James. No, thanks for coming on. Obviously, we've been, I guess, connected online for a while now through Science of Sport and through your, I don't know what you'll call your Twitter now. I guess your Twitter's more like baiting the strength conditioning community to start arguments. Basically. <laughs> that's what what twitter's good for these days yeah that's true actually so do you want to maybe give us a brief background of yourself maybe what you're currently doing who you're working with all that and then we'll dive into some uh snc stuff for combat sports sure so uh, i just finished my 14th year of coaching um spent a couple years as uh as a sport coach in american football um and then i uh found enlightenment and started pursuing strength and conditioning <laughs> and um i've been a strength coach for uh for 12 years now and i've worked at, at every level um in the american system with the exception of pro sports uh, although i do have a, a a decent uh pro pro athlete client list uh for my work in the private sector um spent six years at the high school level uh spent three, two years, uh, in the private sector at a kind of a large facility, uh, one year at the division one level. And then I've spent the last six years, uh, at the small college level, uh, before kind of transitioning full-time, um, into my own facility and, uh, pursuing some consulting work as well. Very nice. You've obviously spanned all ages and levels, which would be actually useful for our listeners too, because obviously a lot of our listeners on this podcast, uh, on that kind of amateur ranks, you know, looking to develop themselves on little budgets and things like that. And obviously within a lot of those sectors, you probably don't have much of a budget either, depending on which high school. Well, in saying that, some of these Texas high schools and stuff, those gyms, <laughs> my God. <laughs> yep. No, it's, it's, you know, one of the kind of tying into that, but one of my kind of core values is practical over optimal. And that's uh, a lot of that is derived from my work with, with military personnel because they are always in austere environments. They're always dealing with a lack of equipment or a lack of resources. So, um, the more I can, I can give those kinds of groups that, that don't have the, the perfect facilities or the perfect, uh, the, you know, ton of resources, the better. Nice. Well, let's start then. Cause you've obviously gone down the rabbit hole recently on aerobic conditioning or aerobic energy system development. So let's start with maybe an, an overarching view of why aerobic energy system development is important for, I guess you could say most mixed sports, but we'll just, for example, we'll just relate this to combat sports. And mm -hmm. then maybe we can dive into once we go through a lot of that, some examples of various aerobic style workouts that people can do. Um, so a lot of my interest in, in aerobic capacity work and aerobic conditioning in general um, kind of stems from working with endurance athletes and being a failed endurance athlete myself. Um, a lot of the, the bioenergetics research on energy systems in the endurance community is much more advanced than in field and court sports, for sure. I would say combat sports is, is ahead of the game, um, thanks to a lot of Joel Jameson's work um, mm. than then most team sports um yeah, that's like the conditioning I, bible that book it is a hundred percent yeah it's it's a big it's been a huge influence on um on my 
philosophy as far as conditioning work. Um, but what I, what I realized in, in team sports is there's this, um, this emphasis on outputs, right? Um, speed, power, strength. And there's kind of this, this idea that um, conditioning is an output. Um, combat sports would probably be the only scenario in which conditioning is actually an output. I mean, if you think about a three-minute round, you know, you're working through multiple layers of energy systems, um, you know, in different and um, basically different percentages, if you want to frame it that way. Um, throughout a three-minute round, and then you get you get time to recover after the round is over. Um, where aerobic conditioning fits into that puzzle is that you empty the tank in those three minutes, and aerobic capacity and aerobic conditioning is going to refill the tank more quickly and enable you know the fighter to be able to get back into the next round uh, with as close to maximum potential from an output standpoint as they possibly can. Right, that's definitely something that I've emphasized as well with on within the Sweet Science of Fighting blog. It's while aerobic conditioning can obviously underpin performance aspects, help you work you know, essentially at lower outputs, but then obviously between rounds to be able to recover between if you're in a jiu-jitsu tournament where you're fighting multiple times a day, you need to recover between those. Or if you're between rounds of MMA and boxing, you've obviously only got a minute to be able to recover and be able to come back out and perform maximal outputs again. So is there, are there, I guess, let's start with capacity versus power. So obviously a lot of people okay. use these terms interchangeably and they're like, okay, aerobic capacity versus aerobic power work. What's the difference? What am I trying to achieve by doing either end? So your aerobic capacity end is going to be um, what would be below what we kind of classify as your ventilatory threshold or your first ventilatory threshold. So if you take running as your mode, um, your ability to nasal breathe for an extended period of time, let's just say arbitrarily 20 minutes, um, is what would qualify as your, your ventilatory threshold. So everything under that is aerobic capacity. That's going to be, um, that's going to be your ability to. That's going to uh, support your ability to recover between rounds, between uh, between bouts, um, between tournaments, between training sessions. Um, aerobic power is going to be between ventilatory threshold one and ventilatory threshold two. Um, which is kind of when you're forced to start mouth breathing, depending on the intensity or because of the intensity of your training. Um, and also there's going to be um, kind of from a, from a waste product level in the, uh, within the cells is where you're going to start to accumulate too much lactate um, that is going to exceed your cells ability to clear it into the bloodstream. Um, so for, you know, if you think about a, a high intensity conditioning session, um, kind of the point at which you start to feel, you know, burning at the muscular level from hydrogen ions and, and et cetera, that can't get cleared from the cells into the bloodstream. Gotcha. So maybe let's touch on 
why uh, I guess you kind of touched on on why you're doing the aerobic capacity and somewhat the aerobic power. Do you have any examples then of maybe those workouts? Then how do I determine if I'm in the right range? You obviously mentioned you're breathing a little harder between um, ventilatory threshold one and two. Is there maybe a, a generic heart rate range that someone could use, or are you just going by breathing? To use breathing because uh, not every athlete has a heart rate monitor, but there are uh, there are pretty close correlations with the different heart rate zones, as well as like ventilatory threshold one and two, <laughs> lactate threshold one and two, um, and then you can assign or prescribe conditioning programming based on heart rate zone that also correlates with those with those thresholds um really like for aerobic capacity so below ventilatory threshold one uh is going to be kind of your zone two range so the, the zone model um which there are several uh, the one that i use personally as a five zone and uh zone two is basically 65 percent to 75 percent of your maximum heart rate and um, even without doing like a maximal heart rate test, uh, uh, the formula that I use to calculate maximum heart rate is, is 211 times 0.64 or minus 0.64 times the athlete's age. Um, and that'll usually mm. be within, you know, eight to 10 beats per minute of, of an accurate max versus like using an age predictive or um, some yeah. other formula. Um, so zone two work is going to be, is going to be all under that, that ventilatory threshold, uh, one, um, kind of your, your zone three or your tempo work, um, is going to be, uh, kind of 75 to 80% of, of max heart rate, which, uh, from a combat sports per- perspective, uh, is not particularly important. Um, none of the, none of the, uh, adaptations to zone three work are particularly applicable. Um, you get to do most of that four, from skills training too, right? Well, hundred percent, absolutely, and especially yeah. because like okay. uh, low technical skill uh, skills training, I think definitely uh, would fit into that category. Um, zone four, I think, is really the sweet spot for for combat athletes in terms of development. Um, I'm talking about like aerobic power, so that would be right around lactate threshold. Um, yeah which is going to be, you know, 82 to 88% of maximum heart rate. Um, and that's where you really start to see um, the output adaptations take place. Um, so, you know, you may have take a, like a, a 10 minute uh, air bike test where it's just a 10 minute time trial, try to cover as much distance as possible in those 10 minutes. Uh, usually the athlete will start to accumulate lactate around three and a half minutes. Um, and then depending on what the programming looks like, they'll start to see that, that lactate accumulation uh, happen later on during the time trial, but then also they won't feel the effects nearly as dramatically because their, abil- their ability to clear lactate um, from that zone four work uh, is going to be a lot more efficient. Gotcha. So, Maybe we'll we'll cover as well some of the stuff you've been reading on mitochondrial biogenesis. This is something that I haven't gone, I guess, too deep into literature on at the moment. So this is extra learning for myself. But I guess from 
basic understanding, even doing our zone one, zone two, our zone two aerobic capacity work, you're still obviously creating mitochondria as well to help with, I guess, creating more energy. Do you want to maybe cover for the listeners what mitochondria actually is and, and it's important? And there may be specific, I guess, specific training protocols that help develop more of it. And then we can maybe cover some more um, examples of other workouts in a bit. So mitochondria, you know, as, as if you, even if you think back to like, uh, like secondary school, you know, biology class is the powerhouse of the cell. And, you know, from a, a an exercise physiology standpoint, that uh, mitochondria is what um, gives the muscle cells potential to repeat force outputs um, by essentially providing oxygen to the muscle cell um, and then based on what the oxidative capacity of the mitochondria is, that's what dictates how quickly some of those substrates, those waste products are going to be cleared from the cell in order to re- replenish, um, you know, ATP as the primary kind of fuel source for the next force output. Um, as far as uh, kind of mitochondrial biogenesis, it's a it's kind of a multifaceted uh, process where um, kind of the first uh, I guess the first phase would be uh, developing like the density or the thickness of the mitochondrial wall. What that does is uh, it enables the mitochondria to to basically exist for longer periods of time in like an acidic environment. So if you think about like lactic acid, which is a precursor to lactate, um, that's, that's what accumulates in the cell from those high output efforts. And a lot of times like it, without sufficient mitochondrial density, the thickness of the cell wall or the mitochondrial wall, um, those mitochondria can, can degenerate from that process. So um, obviously we want those mitochondria to be as robust as possible in order to resist that, that acidosis. Um, and, and interestingly enough, like just, just doing low end zone two work, not only improves the, de- the, the thickness of the cell wall or the mitochondrial wall, but also, uh, improves the overall mitochondrial density, which, uh, is a little different than volume. So mitochondrial volume is basically like an increase in the number of mitochondria within, uh, a given like muscle fiber, for example. And um, obviously, the more mitochondria, the more oxygen um, within the cell, uh, the more ability to clear all those all those waste products. Um, but a lot of times, like with um, with speed and power athletes, it, the those the mitochondrial volume is not necessarily um, the most beneficial adaptation because it takes up a lot of like muscular cellular space. Whereas, like um, with like endurance athletes who don't necessarily need uh, as much hypertrophy, um, they're going to want both dense mitochondrial density and mitochondrial volume with combat sports athletes. It's probably skewed, uh, up to the density side. Um, but they're not, it's not going to be as detrimental for mitochondrial volume to be an adaptation to, to aerobic work mm-hmm. as well. Um, because hypertrophy isn't necessarily as much of a priority being a weight class sport. Um, as far as, uh, you know, the ability to, to, uh, improve both functional mitochondria, developing new mitochondria, 
developing the density of the mitochondria. Um, you know, and it all basically happens the same way. It's, it's, it's through that, that low end aerobic work. Um, because it is, uh, it doesn't put the cell in, in an acidic environment, but it, it increases the demand of the mitochondria to produce oxygen. And because the intensity is lower, their, their ability to clear waste products is always below um, the oxidative capacity. That makes sense. Yep, that makes sense. So I guess what I wanted to touch on as well is do you, I guess it's not obviously uh, this, uh, this causes this, but I guess a lot of fighters get caught in the trap of doing random circuits of high intensity work as their condition. That's like the thing. It's like the old CrossFit days. Right, do you, right, right. W- would you think that w- that would be part of the reason then that fighters don't feel quote unquote fit for fighting because of that degenerative nature that exercise has potentially on mitochondria? That could be p- one of the reasons why they don't feel as fit when they fight. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's multifactorial. I definitely think that's one yeah. of the reasons, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, if you think about like in team sports, like, you know, like when you were in rugby, like there was a lot of sport mimicry and, you know, yeah. conditioning has to resemble the sport. And, and obviously that's still the overwhelming, uh, kind of conception of, of what conditioning is. Um, and I think with, combat sports, again, being kind of the, the outlier there, but at the same time, like, in a, a well periodized and structured combat sport training program, there are going to be times for high intensity work and there are going to be times for, for low intensity work and balancing out the two, depending on, you know, in relationship to where competitions are, uh, I think are probably the most important, um, you know, strategic skill for, for fighters to develop and coaches who work with fighters um, so that they don't end up um, in a, in an environment uh, like physiologically where the stressors are too much for uh, their ability to compensate for them from a conditioning standpoint. Yeah. Do you want to maybe give, give an example of what a aerobic capacity or low end workout might look like and it may be the same from the aerobic power threshold side what that kind of workout might look like yeah sure so on a on a on the low end uh i mean it's really it's almost like it's stupidly simple to be honest with you you know 30 minutes <laughs> 30 minutes on an air bike <laughs> yep <laughs> you know, at, at, at 40 to 50 rpms nasal breathing um you know and and if you have a heart rate monitor keep that heart rate under 75% or, or somewhere around there. Um, and, and, you know, do that a couple times a week for a month and you've got a pretty decent aerobic base. Um, it, it doesn't take a whole lot. Like I said, it's, it's the, the, the think the mind numbing thing is that because it is so simple, coaches and athletes don't think it doesn't work. Um, hmm. you know, maybe, maybe it's the kinesthetic, like the, the feedback that they get, like, Oh, this isn't hard. I can't be accomplishing yeah. anything. Um, how, how, long exactly do you, how long do you ever make those sessions? Would you ever exceed 60, 90 minutes for like a mixed sport athlete, like a combat sports athlete? I would probably look at it a little bit more cumulatively to where, um, 
you know, depending on, on the level of competition and how far out uh, or how far away from competition we were, I would say uh, a, go- a good goal would be like 90 minutes within a week. Um, now, whether that's, you know, three 30-minute sessions or two 45-minute sessions or a 60-minute session and a 30-minute session, um, I think with too much aerobic volume, especially zone two volume specifically, you are going to blunt some some speed and power qualities, um, which I think is is kind of like the overarching concern for a lot of coaches. Um, mm. But again, just like anything else, the dose makes the poison. Um, and I think I think ninety minutes for for fighters who are more than three months out um, is probably a, a good dose. Yeah, yeah. The whole idea of blunting speed and power as the concern for not doing aerobic work, but that often comes from the fact that people block their training. So they're only doing aerobic work and then only doing power work, you know, and they, yep. none of it's integrated together. So you, you get these nice gains over here, then you lose everything else. Then you get nice gains here, but then lose what you've done. So maybe actually touch on that with your military guys, obviously the military guys have to, I guess, almost be prepared anytime. Correct. There's no, you're not training for a certain date most of the time. So they're going to be ready. So a lot of the military personnel that I work with, um, work at what's called a high operational tempo. So what that means <laughs> is that they are, um, are generally like in combat specialties. So like infantry, for example, and they have to be, some of them have to be ready to deploy overseas with as little notice as 48 hours. So, um, and that's, that's how they they refer to that as combat readiness. And so what I try to do with, with my military personnel is try to match combat readiness with physical readiness, um, which is very similar to what fighters are going to have to deal with, with less predictability. Um, so what we try to do from a conditioning perspective is, uh, from a percentage standpoint, we spend about 70% of our time in a given training cycle uh, on zone two work for uh, all the reasons that we've already talked about, including some other ones that we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, and then the other, uh, the other 30% is, is, is balanced between some sub-threshold work, so zone three, zone four, uh, and then some very, very high output. So, you know, zone five and higher, basically 95% of maximum heart rate. Um, because they have to be those outputs that they'll have uh, that they'll have to use in a, in a combat setting. Um, we have to train those uh, in a way that we can't really with from a speed and power standpoint, like you would with a team sport athlete or a fighter. Um, because a lot of what they're having to do in combat is, you know, covering 400 meters from cover to cover um, while under fire. So we want them to be able to do that as efficiently as possible while then once they get there, they need to recover quickly because they're Mm going to probably have to do it again, you know, 90 seconds later. Yeah. Do you want to maybe think of, because we skipped over the aerobic power example, maybe this would be a good spot now, the zone three, zone four style workout, how that would look, a zone five, how that would look, and then how would, how do you fit that within a training week? Obviously you mentioned 70% of the time is done in that zone two aerobic capacity side. So where do you fit these higher intensity models within or modes of exercise within the week? 
So I, I really like Jill Jamison's model of development, stimulate, recover. So with that, the way that I apply that is that a development style session is going to be that, that tempo pace. So um, top end of zone three. So, you know, around 80% to around 85%, uh, which again is top end of zone three, bottom end of zone four. Um, and the way that I usually apply that was, is with a, a, a protocol called four by fours, which is basically four minutes of, of that zone three, zone four effort, which um, when, you wear a, when you wear a heart rate monitor, there's always going to be a lag um, in being able to see your heart rate uh, as, it, as it increases throughout that training, that work interval. So in a, in a, a four-minute interval, they may not actually, an athlete may not actually get to all the way into zone four uh, in that first work interval. Um, but they will get it, get there in, in subsequent intervals. So, um, four by fours are basically four minutes of work with one minute of, of total recovery or even active recovery. If it's, if it's a run walk. Um, and generally what I will see is, um, though the recovery curves, um, tend to get steeper and steeper. And so what I call what recovery curves are is basically like in those one minute rest intervals, we'll start to see heart rates get lower and lower and lower uh, in order to be able to uh, give the same kind of the same level of output in subsequent work intervals. Um, and then from a, a kind of a progression standpoint, so usually I'll go four by fours and that's going to be my development workout development session in week one. The next week it'll be five by four next week. It'll be six by four. And then we'll do a deload week uh, in week four. Um, and then from a, a stimulation standpoint, so this is going to be, you know, your, your above threshold work. So above 90% of max heart rate, this is going to be, um, you know, your, your, your 30 seconds on 30 seconds off at a, at, you know, at a nine out of 10 on an RPE to where, you know, uh, at, and usually the way that I'll, I'll block it is 30 seconds on 30 seconds off repeat for five minutes. So that by the time you get to that, that fifth interval, your heart rate or the athlete's heart rate will be in that zone five region. Um, and then they'll get a full three minutes to recover. And usually we'll repeat that, uh, for, for three to five, uh, three to five sets basically. So it ended up being, you know, week one will be, uh, three by five with three minutes of, of recovery in between each set. Uh, next week will be four by five, three minutes recovery between each set. Week three will be five by five with, you know, your three minute recovery and then deload for that fourth week back to three by five. Um, and then from a recovery standpoint, that's, you know, your years back into your zone two work. So, um, you know, 30 minutes under 75%. And that's usually depending on um, athlete feedback after that, that high intensity, that above threshold session, um, we may give back-to-back -back, uh, zone two sessions to kind of um, bring that athlete back down um, from a from an autonomic standpoint. So you know, sympathetic, parasympathetic, um, and then get them more prepared for the subsequent training week from a conditioning perspective. Gotcha. Before we jump into that autonomic nervous system stuff, because I'm assuming we're also referring to HRV in that context. 
But yes. yeah, perfect. Before before that, you mentioned obviously the first interval of the threshold, the zone three, zone four. They don't quite reach uh, zone four. So that means you're prescribing a, a certain intensity for them to essentially exercise at for all four intervals. You want them to be the same intensity. Okay. Is that intensity like seven, so, seven out of 10? Yeah. Seven out of 10, seven, maybe, maybe closing close to eight. Um, okay. the first intervals probably, <laughs> probably will feel like a seven out of 10 and each interval after that should be an eight, you know, correlating that with, with heart rate, 80% of max heart rate. What was that formula again for max heart rate that you use? So for, for male athletes, it's 211 minus 0.64 times their age. Um, okay. For female athletes, 221 minus 0.64 times their age. Okay, minus, minus 0.64. So yeah, let me see if I can work that out for myself. Oh, live, not live, on the, on the record. So 211 <laughs> minus 0. 0.64 multiplied by, wait. Your age. Is it minus point, 0. 0.64 or is it divided by 211? So it's 211 minus 0. 0.64 times your age. Because if I times 210 by 31, I get obviously 6,500. Did I do something completely wrong here? So 211. Yeah, minus, 211 minus, minus 0. 0.64 minus times, 0. 0.6 times 31. Your age. Ah, I did it in two separate, uh, whatchamacallits. Yep, gotcha. Equations. Gotcha, gotcha. Yep, so now everyone listening, if you did the same mistake, do it all in one uh, equation on your phone. <laughs> it's, just, it's, just like, it's just like Algebra 1, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Was it bot mess <laughs> with how with the, with the order of the thing? All right, let's let's jump into the uh, HRV stuff thing. So obviously, same thing. I haven't done too much deep dive into HRV. I used to track my HRV just for a bit of fun, just to see how it changed from day to day. But I guess mm -hmm. for anyway, I guess most fighters do own a heart rate monitor, so it can be easy for them to do it as well because you just need your phone app to hook it up. So what are they actually yep. measuring with HRV, and how can they make it? Uh, useful for them for their own training and programming. Um, so, so HRV is heart rate variability, uh, which is basically the the time between heartbeats, um, and you know, just kind of using sixty beats per minute as a round number uh, doesn't necessarily mean that there is a heartbeat every second. It's going to vary. Um, based on whether you're inhaling or exhaling, whether, whether you're sitting or standing or lying down. Um, and it's also going to vary depending on how much sleep you got the night before or how much sleep you had cumulatively over the course of a week. Um, all that being said, it's uh, a lot of coaches and a lot of athletes use it to assess their autonomic nervous system function. So um, kind of like I said before, it's the, the balance between your sympathetic nervous system, which is, you know, fight, flight, freeze, um, and parathysympathetic nervous system, which is going to be kind of your rest and digest. Um, I would venture to guess that most combat sports athletes are what we would call sympathetic dominant, um, mm -hmm. you know, just given the nature of the sport. And, and I'm sure most athletes are as well, even outside of combat sports. Um, but 
given kind of how the like approaching a literal fight um you know even even in training and sparring and and technical work like there's always going to be a level of uh or a higher level of sympathetic nervous system arousal than um in general population and then in team sport athletes more than likely um so with uh with an app like hrv for training which is what i use um in a, a 60 second measurement, it's going to give me my heart rate variability, uh, as well as my resting heart rate. And usually, uh, that's going to show how recovered I am from a, a physiological perspective, from all the various stressors in my life, not necessarily just, just, uh, training stressors. Um, and using that data, I can kind of guide my own training as well as like the athletes who I train, who I collect HRV data on. Um, and from a conditioning perspective, kind of tying that in, um, the more, uh, the higher the sympathetic arousal. Uh, so like this could, and it could manifest itself as, as high HRV. Um, it could also manifest itself as low HRV. So basically the, the, the space between each heartbeat could be, uh, could vary, uh, dramatically, or it could not vary very a whole lot. Um, either way, we want to be somewhere in the middle of those things, uh, between high and low, um, to really be, uh, recovered and to have a high level of readiness. Um, now the closer to competition, the more acceptable a higher HRV is because obviously like, again, given the nature of the sport, having a, a, a little bit higher sympathetic nervous system arousal is going to lead to more readiness for competition. Um, how does that kind of explain uh, how to collect that data and how it works? Yep. Yep. That makes sense. Maybe you want to jump into maybe how to then use that data to essentially influence what you're going to do that day or within your program. Okay. So, um, let's say I have a, a, a military athlete who, you know, I'm monitoring remotely. They, I see their data in the morning and they have, um, you know, their HRV is outside of the normal range. Uh, let's just say low, for example, the resting heart rate is five beats per minute higher than their like seven day average. And I have a, a speed and power session with, um, with some, uh, some above threshold conditioning. So I'm going to basically probably push that session one more day, um, and assign a, you know, 30 minute, 30 to 45 minutes of zone two work. Um, because that, that low intensity work is, is going to downregulate whatever sympathetic nervous system arousal they have or they're experiencing. Um, and it's going to, whatever substrates are still in the bloodstream or still in the cells, um, it's going to be able to kind of clear some of those to enhance physiological recovery for a higher intensity session the next day or two days after. Gotcha. Okay. What about in the opposite scenario? So I think you, that one you mentioned when HIV is too low. Too low. Okay. So what about HIV is too high? But does the prescription remain the same because you're trying to look to maybe uh, downregulate or bring back to the middle? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, um, depending on, on, so usually I'll, I'll correlate two things. So if, if HRV is high, then I'll look, I'll look next at resting heart rate and what that looks like again, compared to the seven day average. Um, if it's under five beats per minute, so let's, let's just take, you know, to say that the athlete's resting heart rate average for six, seven days is 60. Uh, if it's 65 or under, uh, I'll go ahead and prescribe, uh, a, a zone two session. If it's over 65 and they have a high, HR, a high HRV, I'll prescribe a rest day completely. Um, because I think that's usually that's going to be indicative of the effects of other stressors outside, um, whatever they're doing from a, a training perspective. Um, and so in that case, they need to more than likely sleep. Um, but either way, it's going to downregulate that, uh, that sympathetic nervous system arousal. Nice. I've got a couple of questions on the HIV thing too. Say, say someone listening to this is like, okay, I'm going to start tracking my HIV for my training, but they have set classes say during the week that they, I don't know, have to attend or maybe that the eight weeks out and, you know, they can't just take a complete rest day on a day like that. But that day just happens to be hard pads or heavy bag work or rolling or whatever. Mm-hmm. What would, you recommend for an athlete like that to do if they come back and they have say that like resting heart rates a little high and also they're a little on the higher end of HIV. Is there something they can do before, after, during training or anything like that? Go for a walk. Go for a walk. Biggest thing. (laughs) That's it. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's, it's simple. I think there's, um, you know, just, just being outside in nature is going to, um, is going to downregulate sympathetic nervous system to begin with. Um, add, add to that, um, you know, the circulatory effects of walking, um, you know, even if you wear a heart rate monitor, when you walk, you, you, you might see your heart rate tick up to a hundred, um, which is, you know, perfect from a, from an, an actual active recovery standpoint. Um, and more often than not, you're going to get some, uh, you know, a little bit of a dopamine release, um, from the exercise because it's not, it's not too intense at all. Um, and more than likely the mood enhancing effects of that are going to make the athlete feel more ready for whatever the, the training session is, um, than had they not done that. Um, mm. and I, I prescribe it, I prescribe walks pretty frequently. Uh, I don't necessarily know how compliant my athletes are <laughs> when, I, when I do that because I don't need to track the board. <laughs> yeah, I, I should. <laughs> um, but I know that the, the ones who do always report back that they're, they're, they're glad they did it. So, so you would recommend then if, if an athlete woke up and they had this and they had training at midday or later that day, they would go for a walk in the morning and that would help at least offset potentially some of that. Or, or even after the training session, um, oh, know, okay. spend, spend 20 or 25 minutes walking as a, as a cool down. Um, I think that's a, okay. the cool down in general is a lost art, but, um, but I think definitely with, when it comes to compensating for stressors outside of training that affect training, um, you know, walking is one of the, the simplest and yet most effective implement implementations, um, for recovery. Yeah. One, I guess, personal gripe I have with HRV, maybe you've figured this, this part out. When do you stop testing HRV leading up to a competition? Cause I can imagine an athlete maybe relies on this data as their, 
you know, oh, I'm ready to train. I'm not ready to train. And then the week of the fight, all they see is red, red, red. I'm not recovered. And then obviously that just leads, bleeds into, you know, the mental state as well. So is there a time maybe when you would recommend, okay, put that shit away. Let's just relax and kind of focus on what's coming up. That's a great question. Um, so the, the, the closest comparison I would have would be, um, like, uh, like special operations personnel who are on a, a predicted deployment cycle. Um, usually I will tell them to start track, stop tracking HRV two weeks before deployment. Um, and I think that's probably, uh, good advice for fighters as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when they don't stop tracking, they get extremely anxious. Yeah. Um, I can imagine even though like we, we, even though through like from an education standpoint, we try to explain to them, like, look, this is, this is what readiness actually looks like when you consistently see you know, an, uh, an above balance. So a high to, or maybe a slightly high HRV over the course of seven, eight, nine, ten days, that's, you know, that that's optimal readiness for what their job is or for what a fighter is going to do, um, in, in a tournament. Yeah. Now it's good advice. Two weeks out, stop tracking the HRV with the same thing. I guess the other thing is as well, like, you already mentioned if you have a maybe a high or very low HRV and you have to train that day, you, know, you can walk to kind of offset that. And I think that's potentially a good thing too because you don't know on the actual day you're competing if you're going to be maybe high or low on the HRV scale, and you're going to have to you're going to have to perform regardless. So, 100%. would you then would you then would you always recommend then taking a rest day if you have some of those if you have the option to take a rest day? when your HIV is very high, really, really low, I guess, how would you determine whether you should take a rest day or you should just kind of push through that so you can almost get used to or get a feeling of trying to perform under that state, which might happen in competition. So you know that you're prepared regardless. Yeah, I think that's where kind of having the, the resting heart rate as a second data point is important. Um, and and the, the range that I'll use is 10%. Um, if, if resting heart rate is 10% higher, it's, it needs to be a rest day. Um, if okay. it's, if it's under 10%, but it's still high and HRV is either high or low. All right. We'll dial it back a little bit and it can be a zone two day. Um, but I think you're spot on that, that athletes need to learn how to, uh, kind of triangulate those three data points between HRV resting heart rate and how they actually feel, you know, kind mm. of a, just a, an actual, physical readiness from a, even if you were to call it an RPE standpoint, um, so that over time they can realize that HRV can be high, resting heart rate can be a little high, but they feel good. Okay. Well, they're, they're ready. Like you should yeah. be ready for competition, um, or whatever it is that you, you have that particular day or, or during that week. Um, and, and that's kind of where I think that the concept of readiness um, is, is really important to be able to learn with those three, those three data points, two being objective, one being subjective. Gotcha. That's good advice. You mentioned as well, I guess your uh, military personnel being anxious for going away on campus. That's a good segue into maybe some of the mental health you've been stuff you've been diving into. If anyone's also interested in 
uh, the idea of sports psychology and mental performance, you can go back to my wife's podcast number four, and she covers a lot of different practical stuff in there as well for fighters leading up to fights and all that stuff. She's even got a course on the website for uh, basically enhancing working through your mental performance. But maybe to run through some of the stuff you've kind of, some of the rabbit holes you've been going down surrounding mental health and specifically to do with athletes. Yeah, sure. Uh, so a lot of kind of my interest uh, in, in mental health uh, has to do with my own experience as an athlete and as a coach um, and, and dealing with anxiety and depression. Um, I was a, an extremely anxious athlete and um, I, I did not deal with negative feedback well and I never knew why. Um, and it, it really didn't even have to be negative feedback. It could have been constructive and I just did not take it well um, because I was always under the impression that whoever I was getting that feedback from did not necessarily have my best interests at heart um, when 95% of the time they did. So through that and then through learning um, kind of as an adult that, you know, I've, I've dealt with anxiety and depression for the majority of my life. Um, I've learned how to identify athletes who, who are struggling with similar challenges um, and then uh, kind of guide them to the resources they need while not functioning outside of my scope of practice as a strength coach. Um, what I see a lot of is that um, and, and in the military for sure, but also I'm sure combat sports are, are pretty similar that the, the mindsets that are required to be successful in those environments uh, tend to be also the ones who uh, prefer to suffer in silence rather than um, maybe be more open with uh, what their, what their experience is um, and, and to pursue some form of therapeutic intervention, whether it's, you know, working actively with a therapist or, uh, even spending more time with, with their particular community, whether that's like in the military, whether that's their unit or, or whether it's, uh, if it's a com an individual combat athlete working with their training group, a little bit more actively spending more time outside of their training group with the people who are in the group, um, I tend to see those are kind of like good jumping off points. Um, I hate to put a percentage on, on the number of, of, of athletes who uh, suffer similar mental health challenges that I did, but I would, I would be willing to bet that it's a majority. Yeah. I, I think it's very, very high just with the pressures of, I guess, especially in, in sports like common sports where you're not like contracted to a team or whatever, receiving it, uh, a monthly salary or, or even then obviously it's difficult because you can get cut any time, but you're obviously essentially training for one, two, three fights a year, depending on the sport. And you're kind of, you're living off winnings <laughs> essentially. And essentially you're fighting to be able to live that. I guess that's one of the big differences between that and a lot of other sports. And yeah, I, I can imagine that. Think about. Yeah, exactly. And I can imagine the anxiety potential depression, things like that would be, yeah, huge, huge within that population. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. Yes. I mean, you mentioned obviously spending time outside, I guess, with, with people and potentially seeing a therapist. Is there anything else that athletes can do 
or like is meditation something that you've ever found helpful or is that kind of just like okay you could do that but you still need to be able to you know go to therapy and things like that um kind of like you know talking about talking about readiness being three data points i i, I like to think about um I'm not a, a huge fan of the term self-care, but I think from a, a, a mental a mental health standpoint, um, having multiple avenues to pursue depending on how the person feels in a given in a given moment or in a day or in a week, um, and then pairing uh, an intervention to to that feeling, I think is important. Um, for me, it's the, the the number one referral is always to a therapist, um, and that's primarily because of my own experience in therapy and um, both learning insights uh, about myself, uh, but then also being able to, to learn how to manage um, some of my challenges and then um, apply some of the lessons from the therapeutic process um, on, you know, my interactions with my athletes, with my family Um and, and gradually, like, um, you learn uh, to identify what we call a cognitive distortion. So basically, like, how your brain um, changes how you see things from what they actually are. And then uh, once, you rec- once you become aware of those cognitive distortions, then you can work to change your behavior, which is, you know, the whole, the whole idea of cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, but specifically asking about meditation. So like my, my therapist, uh, is also a meditation teacher. So, um, one of the things that we worked on early was, was learning how to meditate, which, um, you know, as far as like evidence-based, uh, interventions go, the, the, the three strongest, uh, interventions are going to be, uh, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, meditation, and then, uh, SSRIs or, or uh, like antidepressants, we're called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So, you know, Prozac, Paxil, etc. Um, with meditation, um, it's it's I, I liken it to training in that um, you you don't notice a, t- a difference until you do, um, mm. and it, it requires a, a tremendous amount of practice. Um, but it also requires a tremendous amount of acceptance in that um, you, you don't realize that you, you feel like nothing's happening. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions about what meditation is. Um, you know, meditation is, is really, you know, sitting quietly and just observing your thoughts. Um, you know, if you've ever stood on a street corner, uh, a busy street corner of an intersection, and then overwhelmed at the number of cars that are, you know, flying past you, um, the ability to sit there and not attach to any one car is kind of the ultimate goal of meditation. Mm-hmm. So your ability to sit and, and see all these thoughts coming in and out without necessarily attaching to any one thought, even though it's going to happen, it's, it's, it's bound to, it's, it's the way the mind works. Um, but gradually over time, that's, that's where you notice the the biggest difference. And that's kind of like, I guess the adaptation (laughs) to meditation is, is the, 
the acceptance of, of um, thoughts being fleeting um, and moving very, very quickly, but not letting those thoughts affect uh, how you feel or your emotions, but not from a forceful standpoint, from an acceptance standpoint. Um, I mean, I've been a practicing meditator now for uh, about seven years. Um, mm-hmm. And I can say that it's, it's had um, as much of an impact on my, my well-being, my interactions, my relationships as actively participating in therapy. Wow. Okay. Would, would you ever recommend the, like a guided meditation app for someone to get started? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I mean, there's, um, I used Headspace for the longest time. Um, and there are multiple, actually there's courses in Headspace, um, that address, uh, every possible mental health challenge as well as, uh, performance scenarios that you could possibly, uh, you could possibly imagine. Um, Insight Timer is another good one. Uh, I know Calm is popular. I don't necessarily know um, the quality of the contributors with Calm. Uh, I know that that Insight Timer, all the contributors are, are qualified and credible. Or as Headspace is uh, is basically run by one person, which is kind of remarkable to think about. Um, <laughs> and uh, and he was actually a, a Buddhist monk. So um, and obviously, mm-hmm. meditation is rooted in. in and Buddhism and, um, you know, which the conceptually like the, the, the idea of non, non acceptance and, and kind of non attachment, um, which is fundamental to Buddhism is also fundamental to meditation. And that those are great insights too. Yeah. We, we covered actually a, a lot through that more than I thought, even through that mental health segment too, that hopefully <laughs> that helps someone maybe struggling on the other end, listening to this to, to seek help or maybe start doing some kind of meditation practice as well. But we've covered, Absolutely. Yeah, we've covered a bunch of, of performance and uh, mental related stuff through this podcast. Is there anything else you wanted to add? And if not, maybe you can plug where people can follow you, Twitter, website, anything like that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I appreciate you having me on. Um, my, uh, my website for my, my in-person training is ValhallaPerformance.us. Uh, my consulting work is... Uh, through hpsolutions.io and my my twitter handle is at the perform where uh i try to be as incendiary as possible (laughs) well i'll link all those (laughs) up in the description too so people can go check out your tweets and and see what kind of arguments you're starting that day too (laughs) it's perfect (laughs) awesome well thanks for coming on tim really appreciate it thanks james